0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash
1: wordinyourear for more details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B.
2: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: Okay, welcome to another Word of Your Ear via the miracle of the internet. Uh, And we're delighted to be joined from the United States by somebody who's previously been our our guest in the Islington Live. Um, uh, That's Kenneth Womack. Good good evening, good afternoon, Kenneth. Nice to see you. (laughs) Good to see you. And I I do wish I were in your pub right now with you and uh, with all your good friends and your great show. Well, thank you very much. So where do, we, where do we find you? Where are we linking up with you?
3: <laughs> I am uh, on the Jersey Shore, uh, just south of New York City.
0: Right, right. So you're, you're, uh, you're a professor of popular music at Monmouth University in New Jersey. Is that right? That is absolutely correct, yes. Is that the place where Bruce Springsteen has stowed his archive? Is that right?
3: It is exactly the place. Yeah, we have about 35,000 of
0: uh, Bruce's materials uh, on campus. Right. Very good. Well, look. the reason you're here today uh, today is to talk to us about your your new book, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. It's barely uh, credible, but it's 40 years this December since John Lennon died. Uh, And we usually do the calculation if you took another 40 years back from that. Well, if you took another 40 years back from that, John Lennon would only just have been born, wouldn't he, in October 1940. It's not not, uh, difficult uh, when you're talking to British people uh, to get people to tell you about where they were when they heard the news of John Lennon dying. Uh, because they were all in bed. They were all woken up that morning by the news. It was pretty much the first thing that they heard on the radio. Where were you, Kenneth? Can you remember? I I remember exactly where I was. Uh,
3: I was in bed too, uh, even though I was uh, in the central time zone, so it would have been, I don't know, 9.45, 10 o'clock. There I had gone to bed early, and uh, I was 14 at the time, and I vividly remember it because... Uh, when you're 14, you know where your parents are, right? So if you're in a, if you're in a store and you hear your mother's cough, cause you know that cough, you know where she is. And uh, I knew the sound of my father walking upstairs and coming to my room. So I pretended to be to be asleep because i didn't want to be bothered right uh and the truth was he had just heard the awful news uh on television and he was coming to tell me so i i I had another one more good night's sleep i suppose
0: right right so you've written you've written extensively about the beatles and um an associated personnel over the years when you were our guest at word of Urea, you were talking about your fantastic two-part book about george martin so uh, you know How did you approach this particularly? How did you you decide you were just going to do 1980, that that was what you're going to focus on?
3: Sure. So, um, you know, writing about the Beatles and writing about popular music like yourself, uh, folks would often want to talk about John Lennon and talk about the competing biographies, of which there are many, many, many. And uh, my my takeaway when I would answer those questions and attempt to provide some knowledge, was always that the the historical record for John Lennon, particularly in the last year, tended to be one of two things. Either it would be very salacious, like Goldman's notorious biography, or um, it would tend to be a true crime book. Um, And the problem with both of those uh, genres is that they don't get to what makes the Beatles special, and that is the magnificent music. And in John Lennon's case, the great story of John Lennon in 1980 is the comeback and willing himself to go back into the studio to create new material uh, and to garner the courage to share it with the world. Uh, And that was an amazing thing. And I wanted to tell that story. Not the true crime story, not the salacious story, but the one... Uh, that we all wish we had for ourselves—that last great comeback.
0: Right, right. So now, the way people in the Britain tend to look at, uh, you know, the story of John Lennon in New York is in in 1971, he kind of he, he leaves the UK, he never comes back again, and and from then on, he's living in the Dakota with Yoko Ono for a sort of for nine years. It wasn't as simple as that, was it? And your book does start with a little bit of backtracking over the over his life before 1980.
3: Right. You have to, um, in order to cover the composition of all of those great songs um, and to understand why John had secluded himself in the fashion he did, you have to backtrack and understand the lost weekend with May Pang and what brought him to that place. uh, What brought him to the juncture in which uh, he did not want to release new music. Uh, And at the same time, uh, one of the misnomers about that last year is that he wrote all of those songs during that last year. John Lennon uh, for the most part, never stopped writing new music. He was always composing. Um, I think what was lacking was uh a certain confidence in that material uh, and his his ability to be ready to take it out and and be judged
0: right now so a lot of, obviously a lot of this book takes place in the Dakota which is a place with, a, with an extraordinary fascination for people who've obviously never been in it and can't imagine anything like it. But it, it's, a, it's a place with a particularly historical background in New York, isn't it? It's a very significant building to, to New Yorkers. Tell us about that.
3: Uh, and thank you for bringing up New York, because it really is a New York story. And another thing I wanted to get at with this book was how different New York was 40 years ago. Um, just how substantially different it was in terms of crime, in terms of the upkeep of the city, uh, in terms of the neighborhoods that existed. And John lived in a very specific Upper West Side neighborhood. That was his stomping ground. Um, so I want to make sure it had that flavor to it. And the Dakota does figure very strongly at this. Uh, Historically, it is sort of the first outpost of the city, um, hence its name. It might as well be in... One of the Dakotas, right? The territory. And the idea was that it was heralding in this new uh, quadrant of the city where people would begin to live, which seemed unimaginable uh, uh, in, in the 1880s. So when it was built, it was this harbinger of the growth of the city and sort of the future. But of course, now the city's grown way past that.
0: Yeah, 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 but it was a, it was these New York apartment buildings. They were very kind of picky about who they would let live there. <laughs> is that is that the case? Sure. And uh, in the earlier years
3: of the Dakota's life and of apartments in, say, the early part of the twentieth century, the buildings had certain kinds of character. Some would be more artistic than others, um, but of course. Uh, this with the story of the Dakota, it does become very exclusive. Uh, and certainly by 1980, uh, it's one of the most exclusive
0: addresses in the world. And they don't particularly want noisy rock and roll stars in there, do they?
3: <laughs> sure. There was a lot of concern about John and Yoko being there. Um, of course... By the same token, there were a number of uh, dwellers in the apartment building who were thrilled that they were there because they wanted the cachet of their celebrity. So it really depended uh, upon whom you, you were talking to. But uh, Lauren Bacall, uh, the famous actress, of course, uh, was notorious for not liking all of the fans congregating outside in front. She found it annoying. She liked the, what she felt was the anonymity that existed pre-John and Yoko in the building. Can I just ask, sorry, I left the
4: uh, the, the Zoom for a moment because I had a technical problem. Kenneth, hello, <laughs> it's Mark here. Um, can I just ask, Good to uh, see you, Mark. Uh, yeah, lovely, lovely to see you. Paints an extraordinary picture of life imprisoned by that level of celebrity. You know, there are fans constantly trying to get into the Dakota. There's people ringing up all the time to see if they're there. People disguise themselves. Like they want to go disguise themselves as a the TV repairman to try and get in. And when, when they go out, you know, they're going across the park or they're going to restaurants or whatever. There's always that tension that they're going to be identified and, and kind of innocent escapable crowds going to gather. I mean, did you feel a, a, a lot of sympathy for them? Because it seems an absolutely impossible existence, really.
3: Absolutely. And, um, you know, New York was and is famous for being a place where celebrities can exist without being bothered. Um, that, and I think it, it goes back to the old story that New Yorkers don't want to be bothered either. Um, so, so they understand. Um, but of course, um, when you have a city with that kind of population, uh, you simply cannot have that kind of expectation. And John and Yoko learned not to have that from what I can tell. Um, and it it must've felt like a, a certain kind of prison and you had to, uh, be quick, quick with your wits to learn whom you could trust and whom you couldn't. Uh, because, you know, you walk out through that archway and well, as we know, anyone could be there at any time. And so, um, that, that certainly is a tension that exists inside of that book, uh, inside of my book, but inside that story of, of those times. Now today, of course, being a very different time than 1980 in so many, uh, different ways, um, You know, people have bodyguards and and different entrances that they use, and there would be all sorts of machinations that would take place. But, uh, you know, thinking back to 1980, it's such a different time. You know, we seem so relatively innocent in comparison uh, than today, Uh, certainly in terms of thinking about security and and all of those kinds of issues, because let's face it, um, those things had not happened before in that fashion.
0: I suppose it's extraordinary to think that, isn't it? It's only quite late in the book when the security man actually is, is engaged, isn't he, briefly.
4: That's sure, right, and, when they're,
0: and,
3: they're
4: at, the, at the recording studio. That's
3: right. Right. The studio engages one. And they did have um, a bodyguard for Sean because the fear at that time was very different. The fear wasn't that somebody would hurt you if you were famous. Uh, and if Spurt certainly of that very rare echelon of fame that John and Yoko occupied, the, the fear was that they would kidnap your kids, that that's where you were most vulnerable. So Sean often had a bodyguard. Um, John's philosophy, which he shared quite a lot uh, during those, those last interviews in the fall of 1980 was that, um, you know, having a bodyguard uh, for yourself is almost um, uh, inappropriate and verboten because if somebody wants to kill you, they'll first kill the bodyguard. And,
0: wow. and
3: he would, you know, sort of allude to the fact that that would be on his soul and conscience for all time. Um, so that was the fear. But the real fear for a family like that was that someone would kidnap um,
4: the child. The book's got the most extraordinary level of detail. And one of the people you talked to, I think, was Fred Seaman, who was their personal assistant. who was a 27-year-old student who was the nephew of some great mates of theirs. And uh, was that must have been a fantastically rich source of, of information because he looked after their daily lives, didn't he, for, for a while? Sure.
3: And Fred is a very, very important witness. And his book is important for that reason, uh, because there were so many moments in 1980 where either John was alone in his room, for example, uh, or traveling to South Africa, as you know, um, or there was one other person there and it was, it was Fred. So, um, for this very important year, he is often our only witness. So his book becomes very important, I think, in our understanding, at least from his point of view and what he saw. Um, and John also, um, I think the, frankly, the most important interaction with Fred was the lists. Um, you may have seen these yes. in Hunter Davies, wonderful uh, yeah. collection of letters, Um, You know, those lists are just absolutely vital to our understanding of John Lennon in 1980. Fortunately, Fred kept some. Fortunately, others survived because they would show what he was thinking about. Right, what books were in his uh, his mind, and, and of course they were often books that were in the critical main of New York City, being its own kind of literary capital. Right, so um, there was a lot of ex- I find a lot of excitement in those lists. They would tell you what products he used um, when he wanted a boat. You know, he wrote a note to Fred, get me the dumbest <laughs> single mast boat you can. You know, so those to me they're they're it's like studying in a sense. Um, I had I had those old English literature. Uh, English major feelings. It was like studying an author, right, from the 1880s, and being able to understand what they were reading and and what was going on. The only thing I wish we had more of um, would be what John's <clears throat> books were. You know, I, I he was a voracious reader. We know that he read lots, in particular, of nonfiction. Um, I can't believe he wasn't reading uh, many of the big books of the day. Lived, being as it was that he lived in New York. Um, you know, whether it was John Irving and the World According to Garp or the William Gaddis novel that I mentioned in the book. You know, these were major books, and he was plugged in. And I, I, I wish we knew more about uh, about what that library looked like, in the same way that we know about the Brownings Library, right, mm. or George Eliot or what have you.
0: But he was a big TV viewer, though, wasn't he, in this time? I think there's one incident you relate to, he gives somebody as a – as a thank you gift, a subscription <laughs> to TV Guide, because he's his, sure, is his Rex, bible.
3: Reed. Yeah, Rex Reed, uh, the uh, the American film critic, uh, is still living today in the Dakota. Um, he's certainly in advanced years, but uh, he they took a liking to each other, uh, and John gave him uh, reader <laughs> the TV Guide as a as a gift, which I think is very fitting. He did. He was into TV, but you know what? Uh, that's what's fascinating about that period, right? We all watch those same shows. Yeah. I uh, you know, I vividly um had had moments of association where I, I know that we were watching the very same TV show, whether it was crummy American TV, like one day at a time or the love boat or Saturday Night Live or whatever,
0: <laughs> the world was also smaller than in
3: terms of what we had access to,
0: right? That's true. They, they, there's the famous story, isn't there, that, which must be during this period, where Paul McCartney turns up there and they, they happen to be watching Saturday Night Live on the very night that they do that, the, the joke about we'll pay you $400 to reform or whatever. Is that
4: true? And, and they think about getting <laughs> an account going down there, don't they?
3: Sure. That was April 1976 when Lauren yeah. Michaels uh, made that famous bid. Um you know, everybody was watching that show if they were watching anything. At you know, after the eleven thirty hour on a Saturday night, uh, by all accounts, John saw the episode where they sort of lampoon John and Yoko <laughs> right. uh, during that last year. So, um, it, it, what, I guess what we what we take away from this is just the, the relative smallness of the world and our culture at that time. Whereas today we have 400 television channels. You know, you can go to Netflix or Hulu or any yeah, of these yeah. places and, and, and have access to more footage of something or another than you'll ever live long enough to watch.
4: Did you get the impression that, um, you know, there's loads of stuff in the book about his relationship with McCartney. And uh, he's very kind of public about, you know, how much he doesn't like McCartney's music and how he rather despises the fact that his, McCartney has his appetite for sustaining his profile. Do you think that was partly envy uh, in that he knew that actually that's what he ought to be doing and wasn't doing it?
3: Would it be fair I, I think that? it's uh, pro- it's probably more complex than that. Um, you know, I, I th- I think we also pick up the notion that he absolutely adored Paul. He called him extraordinary. He called him my dear one Um, while he was quick to take issue with some of say Paul's music or starting a new band, which he lauded on one level uh, you know, it was coming up that he immediately heard and saluted and thought was wonderful, you know? So yeah, that's um, what what
4: sparks his return to, to, to the studio really, isn't it? Hearing that and the beat. Right. Right. He hears it. Uh,
3: that's right. He hears this very different kind of work from Paul, uh, and it it happens at a moment when he's in kind of a rebuilding period, right, with the uh, learning how to sail and all of those wonderful things. So, um, I think what we come away with is that Paul, uh, John's relationship with Paul was very complex. You know, he loved him dearly, and McCartney, I would imagine, is very buoyed by that last car ride John took to record to the record plant. When John said to Dave Sholden, Dave Sholen, who's a wonderful uh, uh, DJ out in California and, and radio guy, um, he said to Dave Sholen, when Dave kind of gave him a little uh, a little push about Paul, Dave, John said, I'll stop you right there. I love him. He loves me. I would do anything for him. And I bet you he'd do anything for me.
0: Right. Yeah. It was mm. uh,
3: very direct and very, uh, very no nonsense, you know, so um I think that uh, we we would be safe to say they were in a very good place by that point in their yeah.
0: relationship. You know. So take us through 1980. What are what are the kind of key key points, key key things that happened in 1980? That you talked about coming up brings him back to thinking about making a record. There's the business of him. He started started to travel probably a bit more than he had done in the previous years. Is that true?
3: Well, they, they had begun to travel as a couple more simply because John could travel, right? I mean, he had received his, uh, um, uh, his immigration uh, business had been sorted out in 1975 Had his green card in 1976, and he was a person who was used to seeing the world, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, they went to Japan multiple times to see uh, their relatives. Um, and so, yes, he certainly had an opening up of his life. Um, I would even shoot back a little bit to 78 and 79 for some very important moments. You know, we have to give Yoko a lot of credit. She was very encouraging. Uh, she could tell that um, by my read of her and that time that, that he was having difficulty sort of making that next move. She uh, outfits him with a new piano for Manny's music in uh, formerly what was known as Manny's music in the city. Um, you know, and and helps him uh, in those ways. We can't forget the fall of, uh, what is it, summer or fall of 1979 when Bob Dylan comes out with Gotta Serve Somebody, which really stuck in John's craw, as I'm sure you both know. Um, they had such a complicated, thorny relationship, right? Um,
4: yeah, kept recording all these demos, didn't they? Yeah,
3: yeah. John uh, just had such an interesting kind of disease with Dylan uh, that um, he kind of knew him and loved him and admired him, but didn't know what to make of him sometimes and got to serve somebody really struck him or struck a chord with him. So um, I would even give Dylan, uh, I think most scholars would, a lot of credit for why he needs to. Uh, get involved with this story, uh, get back into music in some way and be part of the conversation. In his auto diary in the fall of 1979, he talks about people like Paul and Dylan are the ones who are sort of carrying on the uh, the industrial conversation. And he wanted to be a part of that at some level. Um there's a wonderful moment, and we—I don't think we'd know about this except, say, for Fred, uh, in nineteen uh, eighty, early in the year, when they go to Palm Springs, and John and Fred see a boat called the Imagine, um, and that—that that sort of is the beginning of the sailing, and—and and, uh, there was a marvelous little moment there where John was wondering if that was named after his song, and. Uh, Fred, for his part, must have said something like, "Well,
4: what else would it be?" <laughs> and then when they go on the boat, there's that brilliant moment where he's waiting for them to realize that it's him on the boat because they haven't <laughs> they haven't quite worked out that it's him, and very slowly it dawns on them that John Lennon is actually on right. That and that
3: plane. that goes, yeah, and that goes back to your earlier point, which is important for probably most of his waking moments when he was out in public, right? That kind of tension that existed. Um, at being with that level, that very unique level of fame, when you know people will recognize you. And he would go through, Lennon would go through these kinds of machinations about, well, I think this is what they're going to do here. They're going to get up the courage to come over and ask for an autograph, or they're going to stay over there. He he almost knew all of the tropology yes, that's right. of, <laughs> of what would happen in those moments. Um, and I, I, I think we all, while we adore folks like John and, and Paul McCartney for the right reasons, their great accomplishments, they've been famous, uh, you know, in Paul's case, uh, since they were... 20, 21, 22, somewhere in that vicinity and never knew anything else in their adult lives um, it's its really difficult uh, I think for any of us outside of them to fathom that.
0: Yeah I i, I was fascinated reading the book I, I couldn't help feeling that the people who hung around outside the Dakota and, and kind of haunted him and so forth were rather ghoulish but at the same time I'm aware of the fact that I love reading about what was going on inside the Dakota? Completely. What kind of strange life was going yeah. on? That they they bought all these apartments, you know, and it was a kind of, it was almost an office complex as well as a residence, wasn't it? And Yoko kind of ran the front office and he was upstairs watching TV and looking after the child and so forth. It's a... They, they fashioned a very odd life for themselves, it's a very exceptional life for themselves, it seems to me, by then. Tell us about that.
3: Well, sure, but let's, you know, to be fair for a moment, um, I think it, it would seem unusual to most people to live that way. But, uh, you know, when you – I think when you get to a level where you have that much money and wealth – Um, you know, it uh, it begins to own you, like the famous line in Fight Club, right? About possessions and those sorts of things. Um, what do you do with all this memorabilia? Well, they had a whole second apartment to store it in. Many rock stars today, McCartney, I believe Springsteen, have warehouses that they own that are very (laughs) secure under lock and key because they get all of this stuff. Um, you know, just think about us in our normal workaday lives. Um, uh, or our pre-COVID lives, we used to go places and go to conferences and do things. You have name tags and programs. And um, we were recently reorganizing, which I think a lot of people are doing during this period of confinement. The amount of material is incredible that you, you, you build up over over a lifetime. Imagine if you're John Lennon and you've been on these concert tours and he has, what, dozens and dozens of guitars. You know, you need places to store this stuff. Um, and Yoko, I, I believe was performing a very vital function during that period. Remember, um, during that late seventies period, when John was upstairs and getting a bit of a break and occasionally, uh, composing a new song or what have you, um, they were in the final days, what seemed like the end of Apple, right? The Apple contract had run out in 1976, the solo Uh, albums were no longer coming out with the Apple label. The Beatles had to renegotiate individually if they wanted to have a contract, which meant for a while. John Lennon was not under contract. Mm -hmm. Um, Meanwhile, you've got uh, EMI and Capitol working very hard to come up with new compilations in case we forget about the Beatles, right? Like rock and roll music and love songs and all of those 1970s releases, the Hollywood Bowl, um, which I'm sure you guys remember. So Mm -hmm. um, Apple was a very, very much a going concern. And she was doing a lot of groundwork to make sure that Whatever was going to come next was uh, they they would be in a a favorable position, if you will. Yeah. uh, Because it had not been a comfortable 1970s as far as. And she made
4: extraordinary investments, didn't she? She was investing in things like dairy herds at one point, the things that they thought they would make money out of.
3: Sure. And, uh, you know, we mentioned the, the seven apartments that they owned at the time of John's death in Dakota. I mean, you know, real estate, uh, from my understanding, has become a very, uh, very profitable holding for her. Right. You know, owning property and in the tri-state region (laughs) uh, has always proved to be very effective. And, um, uh, you know, I believe that they were making very sound investments in those ways, too.
0: Right. Right. So I got the impression reading about him that that she kind of made him wealthy all over again, didn't she? During the 70s.
3: I think uh, that. You know, unless we have material that suggests otherwise, and I, I don't know of it, that's my understanding too. Is that his wealth, uh, their wealth, collectively grows uh, exponentially during that period? Um, but of course, he would never live to see uh, even greater bonanzas, believe it or not. Right? No, the of 1990s course, no. No, no, of the course With the anthology, or. Yeah, yeah. Um, Even more so in this century with the one album and uh, the remasters, you know, those those dollars are incredible.
0: Yeah. So let's just move to the 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 question of him starting to make a record. You know, he's he starts to gather the songs. He 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 feels more at ease with them. He wants to do them. And uh, but she's the person that makes it happen, isn't she? She's the person that kind of instigates it. She's the person who talks to Gaffin and so forth. Is that right?
3: Well, that, you know, like like many married couples, they'd begun to assume particular roles in the relationship, and her role had morphed into the business aspects. Um, As you know, he was never that comfortable with that business, pun intended, to begin with, and he certainly was exhausted by anything that had to do with the Beatles by that point because, of course um it would bring up old hurts old concerns you know sympathies etc so they had naturally gravitated uh, in those ways and clearly she was successful in that fashion but you know he needed to feel confident with those new songs i was speaking to the photographer who famously on august 7th 1980 takes the the, the photos of them going to the studio for the first time um what a what a great day and what a great moment that was. But Yoko, he felt very keenly, was getting out in front of it because uh, you know of a natural fear that if something went wrong, he might disappear back into the building and take all of those great songs with him. Uh, and and fortunately, you know, she was stealing herself uh, with him for that moment. And and we. Uh, I think, to all of our advantage, have access to really that great music that we otherwise might not have had.
0: I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by the fact that um, very early on in the in the double fantasy process, they hired an arranger, which seemed to me like I, I, I know nothing in the whole story of the Beatles that indicates that anybody ever wanted to hire uh, other than George Martin to do it. I was going to say. No, I know. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> they wouldn't have started with an arranger, would they? Whereas this no did. This was done in a very different way, wasn't it?
3: It was, but um, that was part of uh, the process that they concocted with Jack Douglas. Uh, because yeah, because a, lot watch... a lot of the musicians,
4: a lot right. of the musicians he didn't choose, did he? I mean, I think they were put together by by the arranger and producer and, and
2: uh, he didn't by know who's going to be there. Particular.
3: Yeah. Right. So... Um, you know they they had John's demos, and the reason why they needed an arranger is because they didn't want to leap into the studio with John. They wanted to be ready for him. One of the great facets of his life and his recording style was that he liked to um, do things very quickly, which meant the band needed to have a sense of what the songs were before he came onto the scene. And so that was one reason for having the arranger, um, who really talented, by the way, um, came up with beautiful scores and. Really prepped the band well, so that when they got together on August seventh, they hit the ground running. Uh, the The arranger's story to me that is most funny is for all of the secrecy, the band didn't know who John, who their client was, uh, right. until the last minute. Um, <clears throat> but for all the secrecy, um, the the arranger forgot and went to the record plant instead of the hit factory on August seventh. And, and uh, the receptionist said uh, they're over at the Hit
4: Factory. <laughs> <laughs> <That's right>. So, <laughs> so even the, the receptionist at the other. The but other... it's a secret. Don't tell anybody. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> the, um,
0: the 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 discussion uh, took place as to where how the song should be arranged on the record, and uh, I think John and Jack Douglas, you say, initially it was going to be a John side and then a Yoko side. Is that true? Correct. But, right. Well, at
3: one point, Yoko had said she didn't think her music should be on the record. She was, um, you know, probably still scarred from the late 1960s and early 1970s. Um, uh, John was familiar with her songs and didn't want to see that. So, yeah, they were looking at a situation where they would put them on one side. Uh, and, and actually, they go through three or four different kind of uh, song lists, uh, sequence orders, running orders, whatever you want to call them, before they finally uh, landed on the version
0: that we all know. Yeah. But she's the one that said, no, I think they should be mixed up. And he then said, yeah, fine. No trouble. I, I think it's brilliant, actually. Uh, if you're
3: going to have any kind of, as they called it, a heart play or a conversation, then, then that made perfect sense. And, um, you know, quite frankly, 14-year-old me would probably not have given... Yoko's song a chance if they had been on the other side. I would have played the John Lennon side, right? Uh, and and I probably 24, 34 year olds would have felt the same way. So yeah. I think they made the right call. And because a number of those songs by, by Yoko are quite.
4: But he really believed that she was kind of her kind of the kind of music she was making was being finally being recognized, wasn't it? When he? When he heard the the B 52s, he thought the B 52 yeah, girl was- vocals were based on, on Yoko Ono. Is that right? I find that her songs too were,
3: you know, outside of even the B fifty twos recognition that John had, were a lot more au courant than his were. I mean, his are very Beatlesque, yeah, you know, to true. use that yeah. uh, that crutch of a term, right? But his were very Beatlesque, very traditional. They were really they were him at 39 and 40, right? So, um, or 39 when he when he makes all of that music. So, um, Hers, though, really sounded more like New Wave uh, that was happening, of course, in the American scene. Um, what a competitive period it was when they were releasing that record.
0: Mm, mm. And but because when it first came out, the reviews, both sides of the Atlantic, were not particularly obliging. Is that fair to say? There are some of them
4: quite think, vicious. Actually, I remember it vividly. There were
3: some that were, were that were pretty pretty rough. There was one that said, "You know, we don't want to hear about their relationship. Why is that important?" Another uh, actually uh, lauded her songs more than his. Um, there were there were some um, some sort of unhappy reviews, but I, it was also selling somewhat slowly. Of course, just like Starting Over had lots of airplay, I remember that vividly. Uh but you know, when you think about it, as I as I said just a moment ago, it was a terribly competitive period in in popular music. Um, there were so many genres competing with each other. You had New Wave, Punk, Disco yeah. was killing it. Yeah. The Bee Gees was still in vogue. You had uh the village people, you know, Springsteen is coming along yeah. uh, into his own with the river, which is uh the big story of the fall in terms of rock. So there was a lot of different kinds of music out there with which he and Yoko were competing. Uh, it's hard to imagine it today where it seems almost more monocultural, the sounds of the top 40 than it did back then.
0: Yeah. Do you get, do you get the impression he was, he was disappointed Uh the result. You know, my
3: favorite moment in the whole story, um uh, and I believe we owe, owe Philip Norman for uh ferreting out this quote originally, but, um, my favorite moment in the whole story, you know, John wants this so badly. He wants this record to be successful. Um, and, and as you know, he had pinned his return to England on the success of this album. He had this big plan. He told his half sister, Julia, about, you know, coming up the Thames on an ocean liner and That's right. going up to the ancestral home. And there was going to tour, wasn't it? it was- That's right. Oh, absolutely. But he was pinning this big moment uh, on this album. And I, I I do believe he would have seen it, but, um, there's that very poignant moment that, moment that just breaks my heart where Yoko comes in I guess they're in a sitting room in, in their apartment and she says something like you know the album's just selling kind of slowly and John does what a great spouse does remember this out there in spouse land uh, he says to her he says to her that's okay we still have the family that's <laughs> you know and to me, knowing how precious that was to him, to have that success, I, I find that to be just a, a very generous and wonderful line.
0: It, it's interesting also that he'd had such an exceptional career that he got to the age of 40 and he never yet heard anybody say, it's a grower, it's a, it's a yeah. slow
4: mover, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Everything, everything
0: but remember, never <laughs> how <laughs> but unusual
3: you... that must have felt for yeah, him. Yeah, I know. Even in the early... Yeah, even
4: but it's in the fair early to say, 70s, right? Yeah, but it's With fair that. to say that he was, you know, it's become a bit of a cliche in, in obituaries that, you know, that people are always on the on the brink of, of some massive return. But in, in his case, <laughs> he really was. It was a renaissance to some extent, wasn't it? You know, he, he'd sure, spent five and, years and doing virtually nothing, and he was planning this world tour sure. and everything.
3: Sure, and um, these songs, and Jack Douglas deserves so much credit for the production. They just come off wonderfully. You know, they're very well captured. Um, You know, uh, I listened to many of the outtakes, if not all of the takes. And uh, it's absolutely exciting to listen to those songs come together as each layer uh, piles on top of another. Um, Jack ran a really strong and good ship in that studio. and, And John had a lot to be proud of. Really, really well recorded what they were doing.
0: Now, as you've said, it's not a true crime story. So, you you know, you haven't gone into the detail about Mark Chapman or anything like that. Hey, give us an idea of, of how New York feels about John Lennon after 40 well, years.
3: Sure. I mean, uh, you know, you you can't get very far in the city and talk about the Beatles with, with the conversation not going to John Lennon. Um, you know, if you talk to cabbies who were alive and working at that time, they'll they'll tell you their stories about John Lennon in, in nineteen seventy in the seventies. Um, I, I don't cover the true crime business because um, I, I made a conscious decision that if John couldn't see it, it wasn't part of the story. Right. So as far as, you know, his assassin goes, he doesn't know this guy. He spends one minute with him signing an autograph. That is as far as he gets into his purview. That's it. Um, So to my mind, uh, it's irrelevant to to John's story. Uh, uh, And certainly so many others have written and and talked about that, that. We can leave that to them.
0: Right. Right. Well, look, the book is John Lennon, 1980. The Last Days in the Life by Kenneth Womack. And it's out very, very soon in the UK and the United States at all good bookstores and uh, usual outlets. Kenneth, has been lovely to talk to you. What's your next project? <laughs>
3: um, well, uh, I, I think like most of the folks around the world, my current project is uh, is finding our way through this international crisis and. Um, But uh, I'm working with a friend of mine on the story of the making, the twin story of the making of All Things Must Pass and Layla, which has been absolutely exciting because, of course, those albums were recorded uh, not simultaneously, but pretty close to it. And they came out within three weeks of each other and they usher in just this amazing sound of the 1970s and beyond. Uh, they're such landmark records. And, of course, there's there are a number of misnomers about the making of those two albums and, and how significant or not a certain love triangle was.
0: OK, well, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, look, we'll look yeah. forward to that in due course. And actually, that,
3: that, that little suspenseful moment I gave, that was just my cheap attempt to get back with you in the pub.
0: <laughs> well, let's hope so we'll, we'll... When this bloody war is over, as we say over here... We shall meet over a pint of warm beer. Yes, indeed. Bring the boys back home. (laughs) Cheers. Excellent. Cheers, Kevin. Great to see you. Nice to to talk to you.
2: This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults